to the Faith Cuff Podcast. Join us as we continue our Chasing the Wind series, a study on futility and fulfillment in Ecclesiastes. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to you this morning. We are in week four of our series called Chasing the Wind where we're doing a five-week study in the beginning three chapters of Ecclesiastes on futility and fulfillment in life. We completed chapter two last week, and there are study questions available for you online and through our church app if you would like to go deeper during the week with a small group or in your own devotional times. Next Sunday, we'll be working through the second part of chapter three, and then we'll take a pause for the Advent season where we'll be doing our series, The Enduring Hope of Christmas, as we explore how to find strength in the waiting during the Advent season. Then we'll come back to Ecclesiastes in the new year and continue on learning from the teacher about the nature of life in this world, about who God is and who we are created to be and how we can find the meaning and the purpose and the value that God intended us to find in life and to stop our own striving and chasing after the wind. Uh, In Ecclesiastes, which in Hebrew is pronounced Kohelet, which means in English the teacher or the preacher, has told us that once we embrace the reality of life in this world, once we allow the illusion, the veil of profit, and that in our own effort we're supposed to somehow find gain in life, it opens the door to understand that we have been placed in this world by the God who created us and the God who loves us to understand that seeking fulfillment through our own strength and our own toil is futility. But finding joy and meaning in God as a gift from life is what life is really all about. A person can seek to find happiness and fulfillment in life through wisdom or through folly, through pleasure and enjoyment or through the accumulation of power and possessions, the wealth of kings, he said last week. But in the end, none of these lead us to lasting satisfaction that truly fills the empty places in our souls. Why is that? Well, he says, the eye is never full of seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. He says, all things become wearisome, more than one can say, and there is nothing new under the sun. In the end, he said, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow him. Death is the ultimate equalizer for all of us. It is the ultimate statement of our true creaturely limitations, that our human power and control under the sun is limited because we are created just as the world around us was created by the God who created us. Therefore, it's madness and folly to think that we can somehow function as the gods of our own lives, as if we can really control anything. And yet I think his point in writing to us this book is that over and over again, this is the trap that we get sucked into as human beings, whether we realize that's what we're doing or not. You see, this temptation leads us astray from the truth of what God has revealed in his word, and we fall victim to the vanity of our own pride and our own arrogance that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
And once we begin to accept that all the toil and effort that we've given ourselves to in our own lives has never meant to be an end to profit or gain or control in our own lives, that somehow we can manage the, the, the good outcome that we're seeking, we begin to see that there's another way to live in this world. A way that sees life itself as a gift from God and that life isn't something to be grabbed at or taken or controlled or manipulated, but can only be received as a gift. And in this way, we've said that Ecclesiastes becomes a kind of preparation in our thinking, a foreshadowing of the good news message of Jesus in the New Testament that not only is life itself a gift from God, but in Jesus, the gift of new life and a new creation through the forgiveness of sin, through his resurrection and through our reconciliation with God makes it possible for us to truly discover the good life, the tov life that God intended when he made this world and he made you and me and he said, it is very good. This was the perspective that Jesus had with his own disciples. If you remember in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. They don't have a bank account. Yet God feeds them. God helps them make ends meet. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? You see, even Jesus knew that once we begin to see with the eyes of faith that the nature and purpose of life in this world we begin to accept that God is God and we are not, and we trust that he is in control and he has a plan and he can work things out and that we can begin to trust him with every moment of our lives. It's then that we can begin to cease from all of our striving and our chasing after the wind, trying to find happiness, trying to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, somehow hoping that if we work harder or move faster or gain more, that somehow we're going to find that, that magical mystery key to life that's going to get us to the end of the rainbow. So this is the perspective that Kohelet's teaching continues to open up for us. He wants us to see our life and to see the world through the eyes of faith and with a new perspective of who God is and who we are as creatures in his world. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, he tells us that we can understand that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. See, here what he's doing is he's connecting us back to chapter 1 when he, when he invited us to look at, at the working of creation and to understand the nature of the world that God has created and that he's placed us in as his creatures. We're reminded that the universe has a flow and a regularity to it that is beyond our control. 
It makes all attempts of controlling life or gaining profit for oneself an exercise in futility because he says human experience, if we really are honest with ourselves and look at the times that we experience in our lives, is simply a tapestry of times that God has designed and appointed that we have no control over when they come or when they go or what our season of life is. All we can do is accept that that's where we are and to find God in the midst of it. The word here for time more literally means an appointed time, that it was a designed time. It's not just a clock time, but it was, it was intended by God to be a part of the nature of the life that we experience. It suggests that God has created this world in such a way that in his wisdom, he's appointed a time and a season for everything that we experience as human beings. All of life is represented in this poem that he's going to share with us. And in this poetic phrasing, he's utilizing what scholars call a literary device of merismus. I had to look this up because I didn't know what it was either. It was a common feature, apparently, in Near Eastern writing where a rhetorical device combines two polar opposites with the intention of including everything in between. So by talking the two, about two polar opposites and the contrasting parts are used to describe the whole. So in stating the polar opposites here, he's embracing everything in between. Kind of like in chapter 1, when we talked about how he describes creation in terms of north and south and east and west and how the, the water rises and then it falls down. We said it, it describes a 360-degree view of, of creation. He's doing the same thing here with time. His intention is to re represent all of life in its completeness to suggest the fact that this is what's going on, scholars also highlight that the list of opposites is made up of 28 items in 14 pairs, which are both divisible by the number seven, which if you know your biblical numerology, seven in the Bible is the number for completeness, for perfection, and is most often associated with the number of God. Now, there seems to be no particular purpose to the order of these pairs of opposites, but it's possible that they may be grouped together in some suggestive ways, depending on how you interpret what is being said. And the pairs can be taken literally, but also metaphorically. So let's work through the pairs, right? The first pair of opposites is perhaps the most comprehensive as far as human life is concerned. There is a time to be born and a time to die. And it likely connects this new section of chapter 3 with the ending of chapter 2 where he talks about how death is the great equalizer. But it's also connected, if we look at the second part of the verse, to the normal cycle of life that we see in creation. He says there's also a time to plant and a time to uproot. And in an agricultural setting, obviously this is true, right? There's planting and plowing that are each carried out in the appropriate season, all the plants and vines eventually come to an end of their useful lifespan. It is so it's likely that it's also connected to the imagery of King Solomon, who this is supposed to kind of make us think about in all of these kinds of endeavors that people can pursue because he planted gardens and vineyards and trees in the pursuit of his own sense of personal gain. Yet it's also true metaphorically. If life if life, in life there are times of planting and new beginnings, of putting down roots, but there's also times of endings and uprooting and disruption and change. 
In a sense, we could even think about how birth itself is a kind of planting and death is a kind of uprooting. And so he goes on to say that there is a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. See, there are times when life is taken from us unexpectedly beyond our control and times when life is preserved and we experience healing and wholeness. There are times for constructing and building projects and there are times for dismantling and tearing things down. These various experiences of life lead us at one time and another to to weeping and to mourning while at other times it leads us to laughter and dancing. What we discover is that each of these experiences of life has its moment and its season, its appointed time in our experience of life in this world. He goes on to say there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Now, it's not really clear what this whole idea of scattering stones and gathering stones is all about. There's a couple different theories. One theory is that uh, if you want to you know, be really mean to your neighbor, you can go and you can scatter stones in his field. So his plow will get all messed up and it'll mess up his, his crops. And then if that's the case, then to gather stones would be like clearing your own field to prepare it for planting. But another possibility that I found intriguing is that one scholar suggests that the same word for scattering is used in verse 6 to mean to throw away, which as the opposite of keeping. And the word for gather has already been used twice in chapter 2 to refer to the accumulation of wealth, gathering wealth and possessions. And finally, the word stones can also mean gemstones, as is used in the story of the Queen of Sheba who comes to Solomon and brings wealth and gold and gemstones. It's the same word of stones that are used there. So he suggests that this grouping of opposites in verses 5 and 6 could all have to do more with the idea of accumulating and distributing wealth throughout the course of one's life. And even the second part of verse 5 may refer to the idea of embracing wealth or to refrain from embracing wealth if that's what he means. Now, we cannot know for sure if that's what Kohelet intended. But what we can say at at minimum is these verses are talking about the experiences that we have in life of holding on to things and and keeping things and clinging tightly to things and also the the times of letting go and opening our hands and opening our hearts and, and being able to let go of things in their season, whether it's farmland or wealth or friendships There are times when we can find and keep the things of life, and there are times when we must open our hands and let things go. And verse 7 and 8 then seem to be a new grouping of pairs, where verse 7 says there's a, a time to tear and a time to mend or to sow. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, it's generally true that there are times when our clothes get worn out and they get torn and they have to be mended and sewn, right? That's a literal understanding. We all experience that in life. There's also the possibility that in Hebrew culture, when when you experience loss and death, there was a a mourning period where you would tear your clothes as as a sign of your grief and your pain. 
Yet when the tearing and mending is connected to being silent and speaking in the same verse, it also might suggest that this is a metaphor for the breaking and the restoring of relationships. Relationships also require discernment, right? And knowing when to speak and when not to speak. It's possible that the the sowing reference could also relate to the idea of opening and closing one's mouth to speak or to not speak where the tearing is the opening of the mouth and the mending or the sewing is the sewing shut of the lips. We have a phrase like that, right? My lips are sealed. Right? We use that when we want to be trustworthy and keep confidences in relationships. So knowing when to speak and when to remain silent is often a common indicator of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. We know that healthy communication is integral to healthy relationships. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So these thoughts then lead us to the issues of love and hate in human relationships, which also then lead into war and peace. In all of these pairs, in all of these times and seasons that he wants us to to take in and to think about and to identify our own experience of life somewhere in these times and seasons, it's not the individual elements themselves that are important, but it's the elements taken together to understand that he's given us a description of all of life. And it's not even the individual life of each person that he's talking about because not everyone is going to experience every one of those things in terms of war or killing or healing. And so so it's really a description of the human experience in this world. It's simply the acknowledgement of the kinds of things that make up our experience and the, the stuff of life under the sun. It's not even like commending all of these things as necessarily being good. It's simply what life is. So human life, when seen in this way, has a, has a shape, has a regularity that matches the shape and the regularity of creation itself. And just as we can do nothing to change the design and the course of the created order, neither can we control or change the times and the seasons in which we find ourselves. Given this reality of life and the times and the seasons that have been appointed for us to experience, then the teacher turns to his primary question again in verse 9. Given this reality, given the nature of this world, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. And here, workers means Human beings means you and me, human agents, human actors, human doers who toil through life, who do stuff in life. We might say, what do human doers gain from all they're doing? We've returned to the perspective of the person who's looking for profit and gain and something from life that they can earn or manufacture or create for themselves. But this is the person who we learned last week for whom life becomes a heavy burden and a miserable business because at the end of all of that striving, it's only futility. It's emptiness. It's chasing the wind. 
What's miserable about life of this kind is that it cannot be controlled or manipulated to produce the rewards that we hope for, that we seek. And in all of this, the main problem facing the human doer that Kohelet is trying to get us to pay attention to and to recognize and to acknowledge for our own sakes and for our own wisdom and our own understanding is that there is another doer. There's a divine doer who does things in this world and whose actions are, in fact, the decisive doings that design and create and order the world that we live in and the life that you and I each experience. That's why in verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Not aesthetically beautiful, but beautifully fitting, appropriate. He's designed it all to work together in his own way, in a design that he's chosen so that it all somehow fits in harmony with his plans and his purposes. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You see, in the work of God in creating this world and in creating your life and my life, uh, he, he made everything to, to be fitting in its time, to be useful for his purposes, to, to be able to fulfill the reason for why he created us to begin with. So given the context of verses 1 through 8 in the, the poem of all the opposites, he's not saying that everything is desirable or beautiful, but that God in his wisdom and God in his power knows that there's an elegance about how life has been designed to work and that if we trust him with our lives, he can bring about the times and the seasons that will fulfill his purpose for us as his creatures. As human beings, we can't fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. We want to. We, we have a sense that there's a, there's a greater meaning, there's a greater purpose to, to life in this world, right? We have this, this idea that, that there's an eternity out there, that chronological time and, and life between birth and death is not all there is. But to try and understand where God is in the midst of any given moment or any given season is harder for us to understand because we can't see the beginning from the end like God can. And so we can get lost in time, we can get lost in a moment, and we can believe that God isn't there, that God isn't in control, and somehow we need to take the reins back again, that somehow we need to to take over and, and trust that maybe we can do it in our own strength. Even though we as human beings have eternity in our hearts and we have a knowledge of past and future, we still cannot discover the mystery to unlock control over our lives, to find the profit that we seek, to order our own fulfillment and happiness. Only God who designed and made all things to fit together in their times and in their seasons truly understands the purpose and the usefulness of each time and season and is able to control them to produce what he desires. The kings of the world may think that they're in control of their own lives and other people's destiny, the, the, the popular, the famous, the, the ones who have all the wealth and the power, the, the people who meet in secret to plan the, the orders of governments may think that they have the power and control. When in fact, God is the only decisive actor in everything. 
Human beings may plan and plot and scheme. We learn in Psalm 2, which we don't have time to read this morning, but you can go back and read Psalm 2. But the plans of God are the ones that are fulfilled. And so it's not surprising then that human beings who seek to control the times and the seasons of our own lives in our quest to, to find gain and fulfillment from all our toil will only know frustration and disappointment and futility when somehow we think we have the ability to do that. But just as in chapter 2, he points us to the fact that there's an alternative way to live under the sun. There's a, there's a better way of being in this world, and that is to give up our quest for profit and personal gain and control of our own lives and to reorient our lives towards the God who made us and the God who loves us. And now, all these years later, we can also say the God who sent his son to save us. And so in verse 12 and 13, he says, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, to be tov, to be good in their own lives. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction, find tov in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. And so it involves receiving and embracing the joy that comes from God when we recognize that life is his gift seeing the good in all of our toil. It means no matter what we give ourselves to or how hard life becomes or what goals we're striving for, the, we, we don't want to miss the gift of life in the now. Right? If we get stuck in the past, in the wounds of our past, or we're, we're striving for something in the future, we forget that the past is gone and the future doesn't exist and all we have is now. And as we said last week, in a slightly different way, if you can't be satisfied with the now, you're not going to be satisfied when you get to the future. Because it's not about gaining more or something different. It's about learning to receive life as a gift today. This is the day that the Lord has made, the Bible says. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the better way to live under the sun. Here we also see that the good life or the tov life involves being good. It's about doing good things as well. This kind of good doing is the action in life that God had designed for us to experience when he created us. And it's consistent with the kinds of doings that God does as the creator. So we do things that mirror his doing. And this is the only kind of doing that makes sense in a world where it's God's actions that are decisive and not our own. In a world where his work is the only work that lasts forever, wouldn't we want to align ourselves with what he does so that what we do also gets caught off in his eternal plans? That would make sense, wouldn't it? His plans are incapable of being changed or resisted by human effort. What he says he will do and what he has done will last forever. So in verse 14, he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Or maybe a better word for us is so that people will revere him. 
Yes, we need to respect who God is and, and have a, a healthy fear of who he is, but, but God's desire isn't for us to be afraid of him. God's desire is for us to respect him and to revere him and to be in awe of his amazing grace and his love for us and that he designed and created all of this to give us a place to live in relationship with him and with one another. Only when we choose to do life under the sun in a way that takes account for and responds to what God the creator does can life be anything other than pointless in a chasing after the wind? I love how one scholar put it, Ian Provan said, to strive and struggle for anything more than harmony with this reality is to act insanely and with utmost futility. <laughs> you see, instead, the only rational response to the reality of the creator God whom we know is to revere him and to center our lives on the truth that he's revealed and the word that he's given us and to pursue the path that he has revealed, which is the true way to fulfillment and happiness. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The importance of revering God and acknowledging that he is the creator and he is God and we are not will be repeated again and again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and it's a part of his ultimate conclusion at the end of the book. But what we see here as we wrap up our section for today in verse 15 is that God alone is able to manage the times and to call all times and seasons to account. He says, whatever has al- is has already been, whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Now, the phrase literally here says, he will seek what has been chased away. The imagery is most likely drawn from shepherding in ancient Israel with God seeking out the lost moments of past time, the injustices that, 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 that have wounded us, the, the painful experiences that we wonder, how could a good God allow these things happen to good people? All of these past things that we feel are so unfair and unjust and cause us to doubt God, God says, I will redeem them. I will call them to account. I will bring them back and you will find justice and you will find peace and you will find healing in the end if you put your trust in me, that that's the kind of God that I am. In the same manner that shepherds go in search of lost sheep, God says he will go and he will redeem the times of this world. This divine seeking, unlike our human seeking after time and to try and manage and control the times of our own lives, which ultimately becomes unfathomable fathomable and an exercise in futility, is actually effective because God can do it. And because God is God and he's the one who is able to chase down and to capture the wind in ways that we can't means that we can entrust our lives to that kind of God. We can allow him to take the helm and to take control and we can simply pause and rest and enjoy the life he's given us because we know that he has the wisdom and the knowledge and the strength to fulfill what he's promised. 
in the midst of the sin and the brokenness and the evil of life in this world, God is able to to bring out justice and to bring forth peace, to make every time and every season become beautifully fitting for his purposes. Do you believe that for your life? What season are you in today? What time is it for you? Are you feeling in a season where you need to take the reins and you need to take control and you need to somehow get yourself out of the situation you're in or to cling to the situation you're in because you don't want to lose it? How much of our own desire to to manage and take control is causing us to miss the joy that is available in the moment to simply appreciate the season that we're in as a gift from God, not necessarily because it's good or that there's no pain or difficulty, but because in it, God is there and we can learn about who he is and his love for us in ways that maybe we could never have before. That God seeks the past in order to settle accounts and to bring justice in his world will become more clear in the next week as we go through the second half of chapter 3. But here again, what we begin to see in the story that he shares with us in the words of the teacher is that there's a foreshadowing and a preparation of our thinking to be able to understand and to receive the good news message of Jesus. You remember the story where Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Let's have some dinner, right? And in that story, which, again, you can go back and read on your own, but what we see in the story is that the people around him, the religious people, misunderstood the times. The acceptance of the new reality of Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus realizes changes his life in the moment, and then Jesus reveals his greatest mission and purpose for why he came to this world. Let's just read a portion of it. It says in verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Oh, Jesus. Man, you just keep messing it up, don't you? Don't you know that, that he's a sinner, that he's impure? I mean, you can't hang out with people like that. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times. He's given up his striving. He recognized it's not about accumulating the stuff. That's all he was about before. But now that he's met Jesus, he sees there's a better way of being in this world. So he's going to do some offloading of stuff in order to get free from what has had him bound. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. And then we get in verse 10, Jesus' personal mission statement. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You see, like a good shepherd, the Bible tells us, Jesus came to chase down what has been lost, to redeem the times, to bring genuine fulfillment to you and to me and to all of humanity. That's why he says in John 10, verse 7, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. (laughs) The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly, 
Have it fruitfully to find that at the end of all of your work and your effort and your toil, there's actually fruit that is for your good and for God's glory. And so as we come to a close today, we recognize that Kohelet tells us that time itself is a gift from God. And none of us know how much time we have. Only God knows how much he's allotted to each one of us, the few moments of the breath of life that we have to live in this world that he's created for us on earth. And therefore, he encourages us through his word, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, to be wise and to make decisions now that will have an impact for eternity. Rather than wasting our days on frivolous pursuits that have no lasting value, God's word tells us to learn to be diligent in doing good to others, in giving life away in the name of God so that we can reflect the creator God who gave his life for us. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17 says, Be very careful then how you live your life. Sorry, I need my rag here. I'm dripping all over the place. (laughs) Not as unwise, but as wise. Again, here's the wisdom being carried forward in the New Testament. Make the most of every opportunity, or more literally, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The NRSV says, making the most of the time that you have. See, when God says we should be redeeming the time, he's inviting us to participate in his efforts to to bring the good out of the creation that he he has designed. That, That this gift that he's given us to be in relationship with him through his son Jesus means that we become participants and be able to redeem the brokenness and the sinfulness and the evil in this world and to turn it for God's glory. And it's in living our lives with this purpose that we begin to discover the joy and the satisfaction of life in this world no matter what season or time we're currently going through. Because it becomes a fulfillment of God's plans and God's purposes for you and for me who in Jesus has redeemed us and called us to be his own. All our times are in his hands. Let us then rest in the knowledge that life is simply to be received as a gift and live each day with gratitude and generosity and the freedom that comes from knowing that we have been set free by the Lord from the futility of trying to be the gods of our own lives, to save ourselves and to grab onto life and to understand the words of Nehemiah 8.10, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. May that be true for you and for me, not only today, but as a way of living life every day. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have designed your joy to be in us and our joy to be complete, to be a seven on the scale. God, give us a a passion in our hearts to want that joy, to want that fulfillment, to understand that that life is available to us as a gift, that we don't have to work at it, we don't have to earn it, we don't have to manufacture it, but you have offered it to us through your son, Jesus, to simply receive your mercy, your grace, and your presence in our lives each moment and every day. 
God, forgive us for the ways that we try and take back control and think that somehow we, we understand more than you do or somehow we see things better than you do, that we understand what we really need in life and, and how we miss maybe what your larger purpose is. Give us the patience to live within the, the moments of time that you have for us, to not feel like we need to rush out of our current season, but to look and see if we can find you in it. And as we find you, God, speak your words of peace and comfort and love. We thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.